Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. Hello there, welcome to this week's Athletic Football Tactics podcast. Each week we approach a football discussion with a focus on tactics and data analysis. And we are, myself, Ali Maxwell, uh, Michael Cox of The Athletic. Hello, Michael. Hi, Ali. And Mark Kerry, also of The Athletic. Hello, Mark. How are you doing? Good, thank you, Ali. How are you? Really well. It's been a hell of a few days of uh, elite-level football, hasn't it? Um, Sunday's game between Manchester City and Liverpool lived up to the hype I would suggest uh, and Michael you watched it in a bar a pub dare I say it in the windy city of Chicago how was that US based top level Premier League fixture experience yeah very enjoyable actually it's quite unusual to be queuing up at 10am outside a pub to go and watch a Premier League game but uh, I was one of about 50 people queuing about half an hour early and then yeah it was packed really good atmosphere really good game uh, quite enjoyed the coverage as well. Mm-hmm. US coverage, I thought it was quite good. Some pundits we haven't seen for a while, and that's that. Robbie Earl, Robbie Musto is quite good, actually, and Tim Howard, of course. Any uh, Craig Burley? No, that was the the wrong channel, I'm afraid. Um, and then who My else apologies. did they I think they had Dixon, Lee Dixon and Graham Lasseau, maybe? Graham Lasseau, yeah. They were quite good, both, like both of them. So, yeah, enjoyable experience. Were you drinking before midday? Uh, I, I was a little bit, but only because, <laughs> <laughs> mainly because uh, for kind of preemptive jet lag reasons, I basically wanted to um, sleep on the plane. So uh, One of my hot takes, which is not one to get into today, and I think would be the sort of back and forth that might take you and I about three hours to get past, but I just don't believe in jet lag. I think it's all, <laughs> you're just tired, mate, and then and you're leaning on that as an excuse. I just think, you know... <laughs> Anyway, not one. It's not about tiredness, though, is it? It's mm. about it's about time zones and not your circadian rhythms. You know, when people start going like, "Well, I suppose, I suppose it's it's fair enough that I feel like this," because for me, it's it's seven a.m., isn't it? Like, no, it's not. It isn't. So when you ask me, "Are you suffering from jet lag?" I thought you were being sympathetic, whereas actually you're just sneering at me. Digging him out. I was just teeing up a bit to, to kick off the pod. Uh, Mark, uh, as, a, as a Liverpool fan, uh, Liverpool two-all draw with City on the weekend. It wasn't the title decider that it was billed, really. Still uh, plenty of twists and turns to come. Talk me through how you lived that game, lived and breathed it, I guess. What did you make of it? Yeah, I, I watched it at home because I wanted to really concentrate. I didn't want to watch it in the pub. I really wanted to hone in, but... I wouldn't say I enjoyed it simply with my Liverpool hat on because there were times when, especially the first half, wasn't it, when City really could have gone a couple of goals ahead. Um, but Liverpool's second half was really strong. They obviously started the second half really well. And yeah, I don't think it was ever going to be the, the title decider either way. But I think we've spoken about it before in this podcast, how you know season state of the remaining fixtures for City and Liverpool. There's still quite a lot of teams that City have to play who have games to, you know, they have important mm. important games to, to play for. So it'll still be up for grabs because if you look at it on paper versus the actual importance of each um, each side that they're playing, it's very different. So I'm sure, as you say, there'll still be some twists and turns to come. Uh, plenty of exciting attacking play, Michael, and four goals in that game as well. It feels to me, and this is purely anecdotal, that the big games this season in the Premier League have been more exciting, more open, more goal-filled than, than ever before. Do you think that's true? Can we can you prove that it's true? Uh, probably can prove that it's true with some stats if you uh, gave me a couple of hours. But uh, I think Liverpool have played a big part in it. Every Liverpool game I've watched this season, every big Liverpool game, they just, it's so back and forth. They play such high-risk football in terms of the high defensive line. And I, I just think they make games more open than City. I don't think City really want open games. I think City want to be in control. They want a relatively low tempo in terms of the turnovers and that kind of thing. But Liverpool, it's just back and forth. And 
you know, obviously the two games against City, but there was one against Chelsea. I mean, not all just Spurs. Yeah, Spurs. Not all just big games. I remember that thrill at um, Brentford early in the season. It was just a brilliant game. I, I, a lot of it's down to Liverpool in terms of in terms of the style of, of football in those games. If you look at the big six and you look at the fixtures that they have played this season against other big six teams and you look at goals per game, Chelsea letting the whole side down, 2.1 goals per game in their quote-unquote big games. But the other five are all over three goals per game. Man City, 3.1 goals per game. Spurs, 3.4. Liverpool and Arsenal, 3.6 goals per game. Uh, Manchester United leading the way with 3.9 goals per game. 16 of them scored by the opposition, 11 of them scored by Manchester United. Uh, That's what we're talking about today, Manchester United Football Club. And more specifically, the man that it is heavily reported and exclusively revealed yesterday by The Athletic will be their next manager. And that is Eric Ten Hag, current manager of Ajax. Uh, he's reached a verbal agreement for the Manchester United manager's job per David Ornstein, who, who literally broke the site by breaking this news. Uh, it's believed to be a verbal agreement. Uh, he's expected to join on a contract to run for up to four years. It's not finalised yet. Uh, Ajax have a cup final this weekend. Uh, there's a good relationship, a lot of respect between the two clubs, uh, reportedly. And so United are showing that respect by uh, everyone finding out that Ten Hag is going to be their next <laughs> manager, um, but not holding up a, a scarf above his head. That's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, Eric Ten Hag, his background, uh, his tactics uh, and his fit with Manchester United or perhaps the other way around. Uh, some of the players fit in an Eric Ten Hag team. Michael, you've written about this already. Miraculous that you had that one ready to go as soon as the news broke. Um, very impressive stuff, especially suffering so much at the moment from jet lag. Um, <laughs> I wanted to start with a point that you made early on, which was that the other names on the shortlist reportedly were Mauricio Pochettino, Luis Enrique and Julen Lopetegui. You wrote that by appointing Ten Hag, United will have gone for the boldest option. So what do you consider to be the the risk here compared to the others? Well, he hasn't coached uh, in a big league before. I do think that is a factor. And he hasn't coached really big, renowned, top-class players. Ajax, he's been accustomed to working with Generally much younger players. Obviously, he's brought in a couple like Tadic and Blind, which were quite un ajax signings in terms of their age. But I do think a big part of management is about dealing with people. And I think when you get to level at Manchester United and you're dealing with egos or stars or however you want to put it, I think it is a different challenge. I think we're seeing that with Ralph Rangnick at the moment, you know, someone who... Um, has always been phrased in a kind of theoretical sense, but has never really worked with big players before. And it seems that he's, he's struggled to get the big players on board. Uh, so, are Ajax not the Manchester United of Dutch football in terms of media attention, in terms of, yeah, these aren't the players who are going to be on the, the highest wages in the whole world, but they are challenging in the Champions League. And I dare say there's an ego that comes with that and comes with scoring as many goals as they do each weekend uh, in domestic football. To a certain extent, but I don't think it's about the media side of things. I think it's about dealing with the players. I think Ajax, there's a there's a philosophy of that football club is basically you do what you're told, you're part of the system, there's a way that we play, etc., etc. I think when you go to Manchester United and you're trying to implement something and you have a player like Bruno Fernandes who, you know, he's won four Player of the Month awards, I think, since he came, probably playing in a different style to how Ten Hag would want, I think there's a danger that he starts to say, well... You know, this isn't getting the best out of me. And if that happens for three or four players, then you can have a bit of a situation on your hands. So, yeah, I do think there is some level of risk in in a point here. Rather than, I mean, Lewis, you know, compared to the other ones, Pochettino is dealing with the biggest egos in world football. You can make an argument that he's not doing it particularly well. Lewis Enrique um, at Barcelona has something similar. And Lopetegui, maybe a slightly different case, but, you know, Sevilla had a brief spell at Real Madrid, not that successful had a spell at Spain, wasn't successful in the end, but was successful until he you know, made his peculiar decision to leave. So, yeah, I, I do think in terms of man management, and that's something I say with Rangnick, United have to be wary of, because um, it is a big deal. I think it probably is some level of risk. I framed that question in a, in a way that made it seem like you were being negative. When you said boldest option, um, the sense I got was that there was maybe a slightly higher risk. Maybe it wasn't the safe choice, but of course, uh, there's... Uh, a potential reward here as well, Michael. What do you consider to be the, the potential reward from, from this appointment compared to the others uh, if all goes well? 
Well, I think Ajax have played brilliant football. I mean, football that was good enough to win the Champions League in, in 2019, they just about fell short um, through a pretty remarkable Spurs comeback. But, I mean, to do that with relatively unheralded players, a lot of young players and players who aren't accustomed to playing week in, week out against top opposition in the Eredivisie, I thought was remarkable. Um, and, yeah, I think it is a bit of a risk and reward thing. I think if you if you want a manager who's going to make you into a top four club again I think Pochettino was a, f- a fairly safe bet but I think if you if you're ambitious enough to want a manager who potentially can transform United into something truly spectacular then I think Ten Hag is is the one to go for so yeah I'm not necessarily saying it's the one I would go for if I was in charge of Manchester United but as someone who doesn't support the club and is up for them taking a bit of a gamble and trying to be spectacular I think it's really exciting. Uh, Mark there's a few different ways that uh, elite managers are formed uh, or rather a few different ways that managers take charge of elite clubs in terms of their background and their journey up to that point. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, we talked about Xavi uh, at Barcelona who did serve a spell uh, as, as manager in Qatar, but who has been you know chosen by Barcelona really because of his links to the club as a player. There's also a ton of managers at the top of the game now who have properly worked their way up, who have looked at coaching and management as a vocation and have approached their career post-playing, in the case of Ten Hag, who did have a professional career accordingly. Uh, Very much the case here with Eric Ten Hag. He has taken a circuitous route to this point. Yeah, and I suppose a lot of his his time as as a manager or a coach has been in in the Netherlands so it's I know he's had some time in Germany which we'll come on to but uh, it'll be interesting to see how he does in a in another league in a bigger league but he's yeah going back to sort of his, his time he spent a lot of time at FC Twente um, from 2002 all the way through the ranks up until um, 2009 he was assistant manager at, uh, at PSV for some time manager at Go Ahead Eagles um, who are of course in the Eredivisie now um, yeah he spent some time in in Germany the Bayern Munich um second team sort of manager successful um at Utrecht uh, for some time I think he got them as as high as fourth and got them into Europe um for a couple of years between um 2015 2017 before then coming to to Ajax um as manager and has done very well which we can you know come on to I think it's sort of important to say that you know you can you can expect Ajax to to be successful historically they have been in the Netherlands but there's ways to to go about sort of having that success um, and in his first 100 Eredivisie games, Ten Hag's points per game average at, at Ajax was 2.43, which is the highest of any manager historically wow. for a single specific side. So it just goes <laughs> to show you just how much he's he's not just sort of done fulfilled his remit of being a successful Ajax manager. He's, he's done it to great effect. That's right, Michael. I mean, people will say, people do say, well, anyone can do well with Ajax, can't they, in the Eredivisie? It's, you know, it's... It's not hard, but from what Mark's just just teased there, they they have been objectively excellent, both home and on continental soil as well. Yeah, and maybe more significantly, they hadn't won the league for the previous four seasons before he took them to the title. It had been PSV three times and finaled once. So, you know, Ajax, um, they've gone through eras, I think it's fair to say, um, of success. They won four league titles in a row under Frank de Boer. But then again, the previous uh, five seasons before that, they haven't won the league title. So we kind of assume that Ajax always triumph every year like Porto or something, but it's not necessarily true. It's usually a bit of a three-horse race uh, in Holland. Sometimes RZ and Twente have come into the equation, but it is relatively competitive. And yeah, he's, he's Ten Hag's certainly taken them to a higher level. Won two titles, will probably win a third at the end of the season and probably would have won one in 2020, but the season was cancelled because of COVID. So yeah, it has been successful. Okay, well, this is the Athletic Football Tactics podcast and in part two, well, we'll continue the tradition of a lifetime. We'll be talking tactics, specifically the tactics of Eric Ten Hag's Ajax side. That's next. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? 
Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Oh, terrifically culpable. And Tadic has played it through. And here is Mirrors. And Ajax lead 2-0. They lead the tie on aggregate. They have silenced the Bernabeu. So, Michael, it's always tempting, because it's the easy life, to ask Michael Cox, what will Manchester United's tactics look like under Ten Hag? That's what we want to know, most basically. Uh, You wrote in the piece, the greatest fallacy about a top Premier League club appointing a highly rated manager is that he will copy and paste his previous approach onto his new charges. Uh, So tell me about that. It's not as easy as saying, what will the football look like under Ten Hag? (laughs) Yeah, really sending a message out to the editors with that particular sentence, I think. Um, yeah, I mean, look, there's obviously managers have a philosophy and then they apply it to their new teams, but they adjust to take account of the players, which is very obvious. Uh, I think it tends to be that they, their philosophy looks more obvious in terms of the overall style from back to middle, and then you have attackers and you change your philosophy to, to suit that. I think Klopp's a good example. Um, at Dortmund... He played with very hard-working wide players um, and a proper number nine up front in Lewandowski. Now at Liverpool, he's got real flair players, goal scorers out wide, and a false nine in Roberto Firmino. Obviously, you can see that there's a similar level of intensity and energy and pressing and that kind of thing. But in terms of the final third, I tend to think that managers will make not make do with what they have. They'll adjust to what they've got in the final third. But yeah, in terms of the overall philosophy, in terms of the build-up patterns, um, in terms of the pressing, in terms of the basic positional things and deeper positions, I think we can uh, safely say that Ten Hag will be quite Ajaxy in his approach. Okay, well, let's talk about it all in, in more detail from back to front. Uh, in in the build-up phase, Michael, what's it look like under Ajax? Does it does it look like what we've seen a lot at the very top level in, in Premier League games? Um, you know, playing short from goal kicks trying to bring the opposition onto you and play through them? Uh, or is there a sense of, of direct play here? No, I mean, it's patient. It's, it's patient, but purposeful, I'd say. He likes uh, he likes defenders who can bring the ball forward. Um, the thing I find most interesting about Ajax is they tend to build up play with three at the back, um, particularly if they're playing against, if they're being pressed with two men. But the, the precise players varies. So it's three of the back five, if that makes sense. You've got a back four and a holding midfield player. But the fullbacks can drop in, the holding midfielder can drop in. Um, it's it's constantly changing, and I think that makes them very hard to press. And because the defenders are so good on the ball, often space opens up, and the defenders can carry it forward up the pitch. So I think they're very good at that. Um, and I think everything comes from that in terms of Ajax's play. The build-up play is quite maybe methodical is the wrong word, but it's very it's very uh, deliberate, I suppose, in terms of waiting for their moment to uh, progress the ball. And, and that is. Pretty different to how Manchester United have approached build-up play. Perhaps not necessarily how they've wanted to approach it, but in how they've executed it. Yeah, I agree. I don't think there's been too much sophistication in in their build-up play. I think sometimes it's better when Matic is in the team. I think he's quite good at coming deep and getting the ball and can go to left-sided centre-back and and change them a little bit. But yeah, I I think they've been quite basic in terms of their their build-up play, particularly under Solskjaer. I think they were lacking in that regard. So it should be quite a big change there. I, I did think without wanting to, you know, besmirch the good name of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer that, you know, when you talk about the the diversity of, of who builds up the play, who drops in to, to combine with defensive players to, to, to really start attacks and, and that sort of thing, I'm already getting a sense of tactical variability um, that is a feature of the very, very top managers in the game. I think we can all pretty much recognise that, or certainly the two at the very top of the English game, uh, the three, I guess, if you count Tuchel as well. Um, And and perhaps wasn't always the case uh, previously at Manchester United, just in terms of being tough to to guess, being tough to build game plans against. If if you're an opposition coach, we're just focusing on build-up play here. 
if you don't know which midfielder is going to be dropping in, which centre-back is going to be maybe moving out to the outside spaces, what sort of angles and patterns they're going to be, you know, you're already having a tougher time building a game plan to um, to kind of quash the threat. Yeah, I agree. I, I think it's especially difficult to press and so much in modern football we talk about pressing. So if you're making it difficult for the opposition to press you hard at the pitch, I think you've done, uh, well, you've done your first task in terms of getting the ball from back to front. I think there's sort of worth saying as well, there's a diversity of the the players that you have and the skill set that they have as well. And I think that there's a lot of focus of, yeah, bringing it out from the back from, from Ajax, but also so Daly Blind is often very good at his sort of progressive passes, sort of punching the ball forward into sort of midfield areas. But Urien Timber, another centre-back, is really good at kind of carrying the ball as well. So it's almost, if you were to step off them, you can sort of carry it forward. If you were to maybe get a little bit tighter, you've got someone who can punch it forward as well. So as well as having a, you know the system, it's also having those the personnel to be able to implement it as well and having that sort of diversity in that skill set. Uh, Michael, in in general, can we characterise the formation as a four three three? Yeah, I mean he's played. I think what we would call a four two three one, and sometimes a four three three as well. He's shifted really from one to going with, um, you know, from from playing with two holding midfielders to playing with just one with Edson Alvarez. It's a bit different in, in the Netherlands. They tend to call both a four three three, even if he's got two holding midfielders, because the the wingers are always quite high. But that's a bit of a Dutch thing. I think we would call. The system he played in 2018-19, I think we would call that 4-2-3-1, really. Okay. Uh, and in the centre of midfield, with those three in, 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 in different scenarios, uh, what's that generally looked like? Generally quite fluid, lots of rotation of positions. I think when, when Frankie de Jong was there, obviously he was coming very deep to get the ball and being the, the deepest midfielder and then almost dribbling forward into an attacking midfield position. But that was probably quite specific to how de Jong played. Um, this season, I think Ajax have been quite fluid with the two number eights. They often switch positions and almost overlap one another in attack. I tend to think that's something that is more viable in slightly lesser leagues and often proves a little bit fatal in the Premier League. I remember when Andre Villas-Boas came to Chelsea and he made a big point of that. He said at Porto, the midfield three was completely fluid, but because of the speed of counter-attacks here, we're going to play with a solid holding player. So... Maybe that'll be something that uh, Ten Hag does adapt as well. But yeah, again, it's about fluidity. It's about being difficult to press and difficult to close down. Um, and that's evident in midfield as well as defence. Sounds like the sort of thing that will have United fans licking their lips, to be honest. Uh, Mark, moving into the final third, how and where and how often does Ten Hag's Ajax team create goal-scoring chances? What's their approach? Yeah, I mean, because they are so, I guess, possessionally dominant, they're more likely to obviously have more of the ball and be able to create as well. So in terms of, first of all, in terms of their possession, they average 67% possession in the Eredivisie, which is comfortably the highest of anyone in the league. Fire Nord are on 59%. So the more of the ball you have, the more you are likely to dominate more territory, etc. But... I mean, just simply looking at the number of shots that they average per 90 is is ludicrous. They average 20.7 shots per 90, which is quite something more than, I think Liverpool's average um, in the Premier League is around about 18. Um, and Manchester United's average is about 13, maybe 14 shots per 90. So you're averaging, you know, seven shots more just per game um, there. So that's probably not as likely to continue if um, if we're talking about Manchester United next season. But... Of course, they have yeah a real high territorial dominance. Um, Ajax, so obviously that allows them to then sustain attacks and win the ball high up, which I'm sure we'll come on to. But I took a look at their action zones across each third of the pitch, and they have 39% of their total action. So any sort of on-ball event that they have, um, and 39% are in the final third, which is also the highest of any Eredivisie side. So again, it shows that they have this real territorial dominance um, and are able to sustain their attacks and. I think Mike will be able to say more, but it seems like they focus a lot on crossing. Obviously, Alaire is a really strong sort of penalty box um, striker, able to get into really high quality areas. But they've also got Tadic um, on the left and largely uh, Anthony on the, the right. And their attack's slightly more geared towards the, the left-hand side, I'd say, only slightly. But 39% of their attacking touches are on the left-hand side, and that compares with 35% on the right. Um, they average 25 crosses per game, which again is the highest of, of any side. So focus a lot on on the width, which I sort of historically have done, um, which I think is sort of fair to say, Michael, of focusing on that width. 
Yeah, definitely. I think I've done it in different ways. Um, in that Champions League run in 2019, I was really intrigued by how often the wingers would actually, one of them would cross sides and go to the other, and they'd almost play two against one um, and try and form an overload down one flank, either getting in themselves or alternatively because they drag the opponents across to that side, they'd then play a long switch, often to Talia Fico on the left. I think he's a really good left back, actually, kind of player I can imagine. Ten Hag maybe wanting to bring to Manchester United considering their struggles in that position. Um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, it is a, it is a, a historical part of Ajax, but it felt like it, it served as a, a good kind of microcosm of what Ten Hag was. It was a bit of a modern interpretation of the Ajax system. And I think the focus on width is interesting because, you know, there's always this focus about, you know, Manchester United's footballing traditions, which I always think is a bit vague and I can't really work out what people mean. The one thing I'm vaguely convinced by is that they've always played with width. Don't all of the top teams in the Premier League, I'm thinking about more specifically, width is a part of all of those teams in an attacking sense right now. Whether whether we're talking about wide forwards or fullbacks, it feels like it, it's almost like a given at this stage, I feel. I agree, but some people like to think everything is part of a... Uh a big tradition at the club and they've got a philosophy. So uh, the width is the only thing that ever really comes up in that philosophy. Going back to Best, going back to Giggs and Beckham. So yeah, if, if they are playing with outright wingers, I think that will satisfy people. It feels like, well, we, we know that uh, managers always turn their nose up at possession percentage being brought up for, for obvious reasons. It, it doesn't tell you anything about the quality of it it doesn't tell you anything about how good a team is at attacking merely the amount of time that they spend uh, in possession of the ball uh, having said that you mentioned how sky high those numbers have been not surprising at Ajax where they are the, the dominant side in the division just looking at the Premier League this season uh, you got City at, at 68% then a drop to Liverpool around the 62% mark Chelsea 60.6% and uh, then Brighton in fourth 56 Leeds fifth with 54 and there's Manchester United 52.7 uh, sixth highest percentage uh, possession in the league Michael is it fair to to assume that this number will rise fairly significantly possibly not up to the levels of Ajax or or Manchester City in Premier League terms but towards that Chelsea and Liverpool number of 60 61 62 percent yeah probably They'll, they will play with the ball and it's also about how quickly you recover the ball and that's something that they try to do very quickly in terms of counter pressing aggressively um and yeah they 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 want to play in the final third, both when they've got the ball and when they haven't. I've been, you know, I've watched a lot of clips of, of Ajax over the last couple of weeks. And one of the things I was most intrigued by really was just how many players they get into the final third. I mean, it's not unusual to see eight players basically crowded around the opposition box, which helps in a number of ways in terms of more players who can have a shot, in terms of more players who can counter press. Um, obviously, it leaves you a little bit exposed if your press is broken. But yeah, I think it's uh, it's an aggressive Dominic style of football, without question. Uh, out of possession, Mark, pressing in particular, counter-pressing, things of that nature. What can the numbers tell us about how Ten Hag looks to approach things? Yeah, well, in terms of the, the sort of the data availability, I'll lay my cards on the table and say that I've just looked at it in the Champions League, but it's still hugely impressive and shows just how much they can obviously do it against stronger sides on the European stage. But I looked at their PPDA, passes per defensive action, so that proxy of pressing intensity, um, in the Champions League this season and it was 7.4 so they only allow the opposition to have just over seven passes before they make a defensive action. Now that is actually the, the lowest number or the highest pressing intensity of any team in the Champions League this season. So granted they've played you know a couple of fewer games now than the likes of Liverpool and Bayern Munich because they obviously didn't progress um, to the quarterfinals but it shows just how intense their press is and matches everything that, that Michael said. And they do press really high. I looked at their number of high turnovers in the Champions League as well. So that's winning the ball in the final 40 metres of the pitch. And Ajax average 6.8 high turnovers per 90, which was also the highest of any side in the competition. So they had a, a I mean, up until they obviously got knocked out, knocked out, they had a really successful Champions League campaign this season as well. They, they won every game in the group stage. Um, and we're sort of thought to be the favourites, I think, against Benfica. But their aggressive pressing intensity and winning the ball high up was also shown in the numbers, even in a small sample size in the Champions League. Michael, it's interesting, isn't it, what Mark's brought up there, talking about the Champions League and focusing on that. I suggest that it's Ajax's games in the Champions League over the last few years that might be more prescriptive when we're, we're looking at how 
his team might play in the Premier League where the you know the, the talent advantage between the two sides and the, the sorts of teams that Ajax are coming up against were, were, were mostly of a higher quality than what they were facing every, each weekend. Um, did you notice anything from, from watching clips, anything different, how they approach games in the Champions League? Or was it just, this is how we play and we can impose it on, on anyone? I mean, they won six out of six in the group stage, didn't they? Yeah, fairly consistent in terms of um, in terms of their aggression and their their ambition. Yeah, I think you're right. I think the Champions League games probably are a better comparison. But I didn't see any massive change in in philosophy. It's a shame they didn't go further in the Champions League. I mean, they should have beaten Benfica. Really, mm. that that was a, a disappointing way to go out. I think they could have. You know, I, I think they're probably a better side than the Real Madrid side. I saw get past Chelsea last night, for example. I think they could have done some something quite relatively uh, spectacular in the season of Champions League. So it's a shame that they didn't go further. But yeah, they did play with a similar level of boldness. And the way that Benfica beat them, anything obvious that, that showed a weakness, that showed, you know, we know that every tactical system has its strengths and it also has its its weaknesses. It has uh, things to exploit. Is there any way in which Benfica beat them that was tactical, that was something to be careful with in the future? A little bit. I mean, I think there were a couple of occasions where they broke kind of in behind quite quickly. Um, but, I mean, they weren't really outclassed by Benfica. I think it was just one of those one of those things that can happen in knockout football, to be honest. So I wouldn't read too much into that. OK. Well, I was really excited to hear about the wingers doubling up on the same side thing. But it feels like you don't see that very often. No, you don't. And, and that really was the key feature, I thought, of their run in, in 2019. It was um, David Neres and uh, Hakim Ziyech usually playing those roles. And... They did it brilliantly. I mean, the best example was for the goal Ziyech scored in the semi-final against Tottenham. I think it was the opener of the second leg. Certainly in the second leg, might have been the second goal, where, yeah, Neres went down the left, cut the ball back into kind of inside, uh, inside left position. Ziyech just swept it beautifully with his wonderful left foot into the far corner. And that was obviously just one goal, but it was part of their philosophy. And yeah, it was... I thought that was almost part of a wider philosophy where they'd often maybe push one central midfielder over to that side and the fullback as well. And they'd almost try and form like four against three or five against four. And if it worked and they got in behind, great. If not, they played long switches to the fullback on the opposite side. So that was, uh, yeah, I'd say of, of the many interesting things about that Ajax side, particularly De Jong, who played midfield role I've never really seen before. I thought that was the the defining thing and something that, is probably importable. He won't have a player like De Jong, but he will potentially be able to, to form those overloads in wide positions. Uh, it's interesting, and I'm sure purely coincidental down to the players that they had, that uh, a lot of nice left-footers have thrived under Ten Hag, haven't they? Um, you talked about Neres uh, and Ziyech, of course. Uh, Anthony has been magnificent at times, also playing a similar uh, inverted role on, on the right side. Daily Blint punching passes through the lines and, and Dusan Tadic as well, who's just had the most sensational few years that, that many Premier League observers wouldn't have seen coming. Now, by contrast, I can't think of too many left-footers or too many people that, that are considered to have ones, as they always are, uh, in this uh, Manchester United squad. So that might be something uh, to address this summer. Uh, I'm looking at Fred, Luke Shaw. Matic. Matic, who just isn't playing much. Matter. Matter, who is playing even less. Anyway, <laughs> uh, something to look at. Uh, in part three of the Athletic Football Tactics podcast, we're going to play the usual game of good news for, bad news for, and take a look at this Manchester United squad and how it might apply to Eric Ten Hag. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. 
So I think this is an interesting exercise, guys, because you know United squad is full of players that have been either at different points this season or throughout the whole season, and over the last few years, some of them heavily criticised. Uh, certainly questioned about their suitability for a team that is intending on competing at the highest level. Uh, but we do know that narratives can change pretty quickly with players if results, if team results start to turn. Uh, it's not hard to remember some of the things that were said about some of the Chelsea players, for example, in the first half of last season, who were European champions just six months later, uh, some of them making Ballon d'Or podiums, in fact. Uh, so let's have a, a straightforward discussion about this United squad and who this appointment might be good for. Uh, or perhaps not. Uh, in goal, Michael, De Gea, Henderson, uh, anything to do with Ten Hag and goalkeeping uh, that stands out from his time at Ajax that might apply to these guys? Well, I think he wants goalkeepers comfortable on the ball. I wouldn't necessarily say either of these are particularly uh, notable in that respect. Um, I'm sure he'll make do. It's got. I mean, it's funny, about a year ago, people were talking about Henderson like he should be Manchester United's new number one, which seems kind of inconceivable now. But I think De Gea is on quite a long contract and I'm not quite sure where he'd go. So I think De Gea will be the goalkeeper and he'll have to put up with that. And he's very good at traditional goalkeeping things, but maybe slightly less comfortable on the ball. De Gea will be the goalkeeper and he'll have to put up with that. I love that. As if I <laughs> really prefer to play defence midfield. But just just for this season, Eric, as it's your first, I will accept being in nets. Um, what about the centre-backs? A group at the moment, uh, we're talking about Harry Maguire, uh, Raphael Varane, Lindelof, Bailly and Phil Jones, who we don't see very much of. Uh, Michael, your thoughts on that group uh, and Ten Hag's philosophy and, and expected style of play? Yeah, Bailly and Jones, I'm not sure, need much consideration because of, I, I think at best they'll be kind of fourth choice and possibly won't be at the club. Maguire, we know that he's not the most comfortable playing high up the pitch and I think Ten Hag will want them playing even higher. I still think he'll probably be a big part of the side, but I'm not sure his current struggles will come to an end. Varane is comfortable playing, or traditionally comfortable playing that role, but has, I think, looked a little bit sluggish, maybe a little bit lacking in fitness at times this season. So I'm not sure how that will go. I actually think Lindelof could be the big winner here. I, I quite like him. I think he's he's not good at the traditional things. He's not a great penalty box defender. He's not imposing in the air. But I think his decision-making is quite good. And at times, he brings the ball forward really well. And that's, I'd say, the defining part of, of what Ten Hag wants from his centre-back. So I think that could uh, could work quite nicely. I think you made a good point in your piece as well, Michael, about how Maguire might be given a bit more... Well, he was very active in, in carrying the ball out at, when he was at Leicester. So I wonder whether he'll be given a bit more licence or encouragement and enthusiasm to carry the ball out a little bit more on the ball next season and maybe feel a little bit more empowered because he's, his confidence is obviously on the floor at the moment. So maybe you'll actually see more of a proactive Maguire taking the game to the opposition a little bit in build-up rather than obviously getting slated for his defensive displays at the moment. feels like partnerships is something that we, we often talk about with, with centre-backs. And here... Let me put Lindelof to one side for the, for the moment, Michael, who, who you think could benefit from this. If Maguire and Varane are, are the big two currently, a feature of Ajax's centre-backs has see, has been them following attacking players all around the pitch into areas that centre-backs are maybe uncomfortable in, um, but but you know doing that as a big part of their job. Um, Harry Maguire, I think it's pretty established by now, is not someone hugely comfortable in those areas or doing that sort of thing. Um, and Rafa Varane maybe slightly less and less as the time passes, as uh, father time catches up with him. So it almost feels like they don't suit each other that well on that front. Yeah, I, I would agree with you in that respect. I think, yeah. and, and, and but, even does though, Lin, but does Lindelof suit either of those either? I think more so. Okay. I think more so. I think he's, he's better on the turn. He's a bit more mobile. I think he's Lindelof is probably the third most renowned of those centre-backs, isn't he? But I think if you're forming a partnership, I think he probably does suit them better than Maguire and Varane, who I, I haven't really been impressed with their understanding. And Ranić has, has taken to playing them on uh, other sides, hasn't he? I was at the game against Leicester. He played Maguire to the right and Varane to the left, which uh, it's not often you see centre-backs switched from their usual roles. Can't believe when we talked about goalkeepers, I didn't ask you about Lee Grant and Tom Heaton. That's a huge oversight <laughs> on my part. Uh, the fullbacks on the right side, Diego Dallo and Aaron Wan-Bissaka. On the left side, Teles and Shaw. I mean, I, I think Teles and Shaw, much of a muchness, really. I, 
I, I struggle to see how Wan-Bissaka is going to fit into the side unless he can play right centre-back. And even then, I think there's probably better options. I suppose in mitigation, Wan-Bissaka's never really played under a great coach, with all due respect. I mean, Hodgson wants a different style of football. Solskjaer and Rangnick, not really top-level coaches. There are probably a couple of players in this squad who would just benefit from mm-hmm. from someone who can improve them as individuals. So maybe the game's not up for Wan-Bissaka, but you have to say he's... He's really at one end of, of the fullback spectrum, isn't he? He's a defensive player, a tackler, a blocker, and that's not really what Ten Hag's all about. So you would fear for him. One of those players that, that I kind of had in mind when I talked about how quickly the narrative can change. I guess Maguire is is the one to hold up on this front. It, it feels, Michael, like a big part of the Harry Maguire discussion over the last month has come down on, well, he plays well for England because Southgate is a bit more pragmatic there's less space for individual defenders to cover he's got two screeners in front of him he's got two centre backs as part of the back three with him and he is asked to do what he does well which is pass it carry it sure but also defend tight spaces and 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 defend the penalty box uh, essentially um and i can't remember what my point was here <laughs> no i i agree i agree with you and also international football is different from club football i mean you don't have the intricate passing combinations really that you're going to see at club football so I think you're defending against different things you're defending in a against a more basic form of attack so yeah I think I think he probably is more suited to international football the same way you know a lot of traditional number nines are more suited to mm. international football but then I, that's been held up as a, a defense of him which I do understand but then if we're looking at the elite club level sides in world football and we look at what their centre-backs do which areas of the pitch they sometimes end up in in a defensive sense it, uh, that's a problem for Harry Maguire is it not? I think you're right I think you're I right. think the only thing I'd add as well is that it kind of feeds into then the midfield I think that what Manchester United need is a solid anchoring destroyer of a defensive midfielder who's able to then protect that, that those two centre-backs so that okay they might still on occasion have to go out to areas they don't want to but there could be a, quite a few significant occasions where it's just swept up before they even have to engage so I think for a while now they've needed a defensive midfielder who can sort of start attacks but someone who is in the the mould of a historically Fernandinho a Fabinho who can just nip things in the bud really early on um, and I think that's that's still going to be key this summer for Manchester United without making this into a, a transfer mm. show. Well, v- very difficult for me to say bad words about Harry Maguire, whose big head almost nodded us all the way to the Jules Rimet back in uh, 2018. <laughs> and let's talk about the centre of midfield because that's been a huge sticking point and a, a point of discussion for, for years now. Um, the group of central midfielders that I've got here, Scott McTominay, Nemanja Matic, Paul Pogba and Fred. Michael, talk me through that group. Um very fluid midfield three at Ajax. Um, lots being asked of all of these players. Uh, who might thrive? Who might struggle? Well, I think it's the area of the pitch where regardless of the manager, they clearly need someone else. I mean, they just don't have top-class holding midfielder in my view. I'm not sure Pogba will be around. Um, I think McTominay could be quite useful because I think he's energetic. I think he follows instructions. I think he can play as a holding player to a certain extent, as a box-to-box player, even a more attacking role. I think He's the kind of player that uh, Ten Hag might like in a way. Maybe can improve. Matic, I, I don't know. I think he lacks the mobility, although he has got some level of intelligence and passing quality. And Fred's done all right in recent weeks and I think probably will be a part of the next manager's plans. But yeah, it, it's just an area where I think they need a, a big upgrade. And if they're going to spend a lot of money on one player, I think most people would agree it has to be in that zone. And could that free up Paul Pogba? I noticed you just ignored Pogba there. I think it could free up Paul Pogba to find another club, yeah. Right, OK. <laughs> There's no, no chance of a glorious redemption. We'll wait and see. Uh, in the sort of attacking midfield zone, you're looking at Bruno Fernandes, uh, Jesse Lingard, Juan Mata, uh, and then someone not at the club currently, someone Ten Hag knows very well in, in Donny van der Beek, Michael. Yeah, that's the interesting thing. I mean, Lingard and Mata, their contracts are both up. I don't think they're going to be around... Fernandez against Van der Beek, I think that's a really interesting debate. Fernandez, I think, is as an individual, I think he's a much better player. I think he's a grab the, the game by a scruff of neck player who can who can do that as well as anyone in the Premier League if he's given a free roll. But I'm not sure Ten Hag will want that. And Van der Beek, who's who's a much more subtle player, but clever, intelligent, knows the system, worked very well. Ajax under 
Eric Ten Hag. I, I did. I must say, I always thought with Van Der Beek, I wasn't sure how good he was, whether he was one of those players who was a brilliant individual or whether he just really suited the Ten Hag system. So, mm. yeah, b- absolute best case scenario. You have to think that, that Ten Hag will probably be coming into Manchester again. I mean, it'd have to be, it'd be brave, wouldn't it, if next season, to start the season or, or shortly after its beginning, we're noticing that Donny van der Beek is taking Bruno Fernandes' minutes. Seems unlikely mm. that they would play together, I dare say. That would be a brave decision because, as we, you know, we, we, we basically just know how the news cycle works. If things don't work out well, that's just not going to look good. I wonder whether he will try and get both of them in the team. I mean, maybe van der Beek can play deeper. I mean, Ten Hag has played Daily Blind in two completely different roles and Tadic in two completely different roles. Maybe he will try and play him deeper. Um, or maybe they can play as a 4-3-3 with... Van der Beek and, and Fernandez are number eights, but yeah, it's not a, it's not an easy compromise, and it goes back to the fact that when they bought Van der Beek, we all said, "Well, where's he going to fit in?" And yeah. a, a couple of years later, we haven't really got the answer to that. Well, if he's going to fit in under any manager, surely it's this one. Um, what about the the wide forward areas? Uh, Sancho, Rashford, Elanga. Well, I think this is the most interesting area. I think these players do feel quite suited to Ten Hag's football and. Yeah, to reiterate what I said earlier, I think there is an element of of width that Manchester United fans like and Ten Hag certainly likes. So, yeah, I'd say all three of them can play either side. They're all young. They seem like kind of bright, intelligent guys, keen to learn, uh, very quick. Rashford has been in poor form. I think that goes without saying, but maybe a new manager can can improve him. So I think they could be the big the big winners, really, from mm-hmm. uh, from from Ten Hag if, if and when he comes in. As you say, Michael, as well, they can all play on on either side. I, I wonder whether, specifically thinking about Sancho, I suppose, he can play really well on either side and has done uh, this season. I wonder whether he'll sort of, Ten Hag will stick to one side with Sancho and just really try and refine his role a little bit and see whether he can really just get him consistently in the same role and, and specialise in, in, on one side, maybe rather than just switching him each time. Yeah, although I wonder as well whether, you know, what we said before about the two wingers kind of doubling up, I think that, that could mm. work well. I yeah. mean, with Alanga and Sancho, maybe. I think the two most wingery of those three, Rashford, I think, was more as a kind of goal-scoring wide player or sometimes sent forward. But yeah, I'd be quite excited if I was those three. I think that's mm. uh, that's potentially a, a fun area of the pitch. I'd be quite sad, given that none of those players are left-footed. I'd be sad if we don't see... A wand signed this summer, a left-footed <laughs> wing wizard. Um, we'll wait and see. Uh, striker up top, Cristiano Ronaldo, Edinson Cavani. What are our thoughts here? I know that Ten Hag at times played with one of the falsest of nines in Dusan Tadic. has also played with one of the niniest nines in Sebastian Haller. I mean, you'd be surprised if both of them were around. I mean, Cavani's contract is coming to an end. I think he's another one who who won't be around. I don't think Ronaldo is the kind of player that Ten Hag would bring in. Um, I think it would be difficult for him to come in and say, I don't want Ronaldo. So that, I mean, that's a great example, I think, of the compromise that he might have to make in terms of his attacking section of the side because he's, uh, yeah, he is an ego. He is someone who doesn't necessarily play for the system, play for the team. Um, And that goes back to what we said at the start, that I think this is a certain, you know, a certain level of risk in terms of the man management side of things. I mean, yeah, in, in the medium term as well, like neither of them are going to be there simply because of their age. And there's been a lot of talk about this five-year plan, hasn't there? Five-year project for Ten Hag as well. So come, you know, towards the end of that five-year plan, I wonder who that person will be in that number nine role, in that central striker role, whether it will be a false nine or a, an outright number nine. Um, but if we're going to be honest, it's going to be neither Cristiano Ronaldo or Cavani simply because of their age. Uh, and not being funny, but five years is a long time. I mean, no one yeah. gets five years to turn into yeah, a football true. club anymore, do they? I mean, even even Klopp, I mean, that was a relative... I thought of that when he took over as quite a long-term job, but, I mean, really three years in, they were near enough the top level and they've been roughly there ever since. So, I mean, five years, maybe maybe that includes two or three years of success, but I think... I think two, three max is really way, you know, how long you're going to get. Well, it's a hell of a recruitment job, isn't it? Um, probably upgrades in, in all and every area of the pitch would be ideal over time, but perhaps most pressingly, based on what you've said, based on what we've spoken about with Ten Hag's uh, past, I mean, a centre-back, a centre-midfielder and a striker, just the, just the spine of a team, really. Be a good place to start. Um, it's going to be absolutely fascinating. I think you're right. I mean, the one thing to say is that 
I think a lot of these players, it's tough really to know what their level is because I just don't think they've played under a great manager in the last three or, yeah, three seasons. So someone like Wan-Bissaka, I feel quite sorry for him because he was very, very promising at Crystal Palace. He did his job very well. Manchester United paid £50 million for him and I don't remember too many people saying that's ridiculous. Okay, it's a lot of money, but that was kind of how he was considered and he hasn't really played on, well, if you put him under Jurgen Klopp, for example, I just think he'd be a much better player because he he just developed more individually. So I think there are a few players. I'd say him, maybe McTominay, where maybe Ten Hag can do a bit of a job with them and and turn them around. As to be fair, I think to a certain extent, Ranjuk has done with Fred. I think Fred's looked looked much better since the change of manager. So yeah, there's a lot of players. I I don't know their level. I don't know whether they've been temporarily underperforming or whether a lack of two or three years of development means they're just not really going to be good enough. On a more general league-wide level, uh, Michael, uh, there's a bit more clarity now about the future of, of Manchester United. And it feels to me like, you know, we spoke earlier about how the big games have really lived up to expectation this season. I've seen people suggest that it, it's down to the managers, really, the group of managers that we have. Perhaps more pointedly, a couple of managers that were big in English football over the last 10, 15 years who who don't manage in the division anymore and therefore those games look a little bit different tactically, dare I say. But on a base level, adding Ten Hag to the dugout of a, a group of big six teams with Arteta, with Conte, Tuchel, Klopp, Pep Guardiola, we, we are spoiled, aren't we, on, on that front? Yeah, I think so. There's no other collection of managers in the world like the Premier League can boast. And yeah, I think it should be fun. I think it should make the football fun. I mean, I think you know, I need to be purposeful. You know, let's not forget they appointed, 2014, they appointed a, a Dutch manager, former Ajax manager in Van Hal, who had a tradition of playing great football. And United were very, very, very patient. I mean, just pedestrian in possession. I think really Ten Hag needs to avoid that and make sure his side are purposeful on the ball. Um, but yeah, I, like I say, I, I'm not a Manchester United fan. I'm, I'm not necessarily saying it's a sure thing. But for, for us who like to look at the game tactically, I think this is the most interesting of the the four potential, or the four guys they seemingly interviewed. Um, I think it could be a lot of fun. Well, you've helped me get excited about it. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Michael. Uh, excellent insight today. There's so much good stuff on Ten Hag on the athletic site. Ten Hag covered from 10 angles um, from what I saw this morning. Do sign up today by heading to theathletic.com forward slash tactics. You'll pay just £1 a month for the first six months of your annual subscription. We'll be back again next week. I'm already excited about it. Uh, join us then on the Athletic Football Tactics podcast. The Athletic.